The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today is an award-winning author with a remarkable list of best-selling thrillers translated into some 20 languages worldwide. After graduating in law at Cornell University, he spent three years as a covert operative in the CIA. His work in the private sector in Silicon Valley and Japan that followed combined with the experience of government service has developed an astounding list of novels holding powerful clues and messages to the American system we live in today. His latest book, Inside Out, due out this June, has again reinforced the strength of a thriller narrative, an exciting style within which this writer has established himself among the greatest authors of the present day. Barry Eisler, welcome to you. <laughs> it's always nice to get an introduction like that, David. Thank you. <laughs> Was that, uh, did that make your head sort of expand three I ins- times? I insist on that sort of introduction when I do a radio show. Thank you so much for being here uh, uh, today, you. Barry. Um, obviously, we're going to uh, find our way through this this maze uh, to inside out your latest book, which I believe is coming out in June. June 29th in and, the states, yeah. And what will be the? Uh, where will that be in your collection now? That um, will be number eight. Number eight. Could we start off, Barry, could we start out just with a couple of minutes from you, a brief overview of your life today and what you're doing, where you're going? Sure. Uh, well, I suppose if there's any theme to my professional life, it's one of downsizing because my first job out of law school was with the government, and that's a pretty big employer. Uh, after that, I joined a private law firm, Wild Gotchel and Mangies, which at the time was about a 600-lawyer uh, operation, so still fairly big, not as big as the government. From there, I went to a four-person Silicon Valley technology startup, and, uh, and from there to my current job where I'm, uh, I'm the only employee, and that seems to suit me pretty well. So you're doing a lot of traveling, obviously. Yeah, I do a lot of traveling for research uh, because part of my brand has become realism. I really try as hard as I can to make sure that everything about the books is accurate. The backstory, the spy tactics, the martial arts... Uh, the characters, certainly, and their worldviews, their, um, their way of doing things, and the locations. So uh, I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me, but yes, I have, in the uh, course of research, had to visit places as diverse as Barcelona, Paris, Phuket, uh, Manila, Tokyo, Macau, Hong Kong, and uh, um, probably, I know I'm leaving out quite a few, but that's just off the top of my head. So you're traveling all over the world? Yeah, I have, well, uh, yeah, getting close to all over the world. I mean, one trip to uh, Brazil for about a week for my third book. I uh, haven't made it to Africa yet, but I hope I can correct that. That's a fairly big place, but uh, one step at a time. And there's a fair amount of travel for promotion as well. 
I'm going to take you back to your childhood and then sort of draw a line in the sand here and work forwards. What are your recollections looking back at the first time that you saw writing as being a passion, a vision of yours? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, uh, well, I've always liked to write since since I was a little kid. Um, I must have been maybe eight years old or something like that when I started writing short stories. I would stay at my grandmother's place uh, on the Jersey Shore in the summer for a couple of weeks, and she had an old typewriter. Actually, at the time, it was not old. Uh, these days, it would be an antique, just a manual typewriter. And I used to write short stories about werewolves and vampires and that sort of thing. Uh, fortunately, as far as I know, none of those are any longer extant. <laughs> but uh, that's, what I, that's what I used to do on the writing front as a kid. And I was always a big reader from, from Go. Um, what's odd is that I always seem to have a talent for writing. Uh, I wrote a column for the school newspaper when I was in law school. And every, in every job I've ever had, I became known somehow or other as the guy to go to if you needed some writing done, whether it was advertising copy or a business plan or whatever. And I always thought it would be a really cool thing to be a novelist and make your living as a novelist. So uh, it's odd that these two very uh, obviously related thoughts, I had a talent for writing and I thought it would be good to make a living at writing, somehow did not come together until I was almost 30 and living in Tokyo. And that's when I first uh, started writing something that I realized could become a novel and that indeed did become a novel. I pose the question academic analytical or creative right how what of those do you think that you fit into then and you fit into now Uh, because of your background hmm. in law was it less creative when you first began this that's another interesting question and and probably nobody obviously nobody's going to uh fit very neatly into any one category it's a question of degree um as a lawyer, obviously, you've got to have some native ability to analyze uh, any kind of factual situation. Uh, so I would say I'm reasonably good on the analysis front. What a lot of people don't realize is actually being, being a lawyer, or at least being a good lawyer, takes a lot of creativity, too. If you're a litigator, you're taking an existing set of facts. You're looking at a, a relationship that has already happened. And you're trying to present those facts in the light that will be most favorable to your client. If you're a transactional lawyer, a a contracts lawyer, as I was, then the creativity expresses itself in a little bit different way. Um, You are looking at a relationship that hasn't happened yet. Two or more parties want to form some sort of new relationship. And you have to imagine all the different possibilities of that relationship and account for them on paper even though they haven't happened yet. That does take a fair amount of creativity. I think, by the way, it's not a coincidence that so many lawyers become novelists. Um, The ones who can write well anyway were a fairly uh, rare breed in the profession, as anyone who's ever read a legal (laughs) document can attest. Um, But there are a lot of lawyers, I mean, starting with Scott Turow and John Grisham and David Baldacci and Steve Martini and uh, and a bunch I'm just leaving off off the top of my head. I think you you hone a certain kind of storytelling skill, creative storytelling skill as a lawyer, for the reasons I just mentioned. You're having to essentially tell the story, if you're a contracts lawyer, of a relationship that hasn't happened yet. Or if you're a litigator, you're trying to put a story sure. uh, that's already happened into sure. a certain context. So, um, so for me, I don't know that, that I would say I've ever been more creative or analytical, or I forget what the other category was. If I did, I must not be that one. <laughs> 
academic. Academic, um, yeah. Probably I, I, that would I be do that. actually, I do actually think that there's a big difference between academic and analytical. Mm-hmm. There's a huge divide there. Yeah, and, and the lawyer in me wants to get right down to it and define our terms. But uh, but if I understand the use of academic in the traditional sense, yeah, I would say in that in that area, I'm probably. That's probably the uh, the weak stepchild of the three in my <laughs> in my personality. Let's uh, move on uh, briefly to your childhood. Mm-hmm. What are your most profound memories? My childhood. Uh, I had a good home and a good upbringing in suburban New Jersey, a place that's known to be a little bit dull, and I suppose compared to some other parts of the world, it is. But uh, it was great. I had a good family. Um, uh, not so much exposure to to the wider world, I guess, and uh, um, I was not that interested in the wider world until I was about 20 and in college, and then I went through a kind of awakening that I think of as, a, as intellectual puberty. You know, that was just my time when my mind woke up. But up until then, good childhood, um, not a very good student, but a uh, reasonably good wrestler. Wrestling's big in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, mostly happy memories. What about ways of life? How do you remember ways of life back then versus what they are now? Was it in a rural community or were you in the city? Suburbs. Yeah. A suburb of Newark. But a very different picture today than it would have been then. Well, I think uh, I had a pretty innocent upbringing. Uh, An intact family, good neighborhood, low crime, uh, so my expectations were that you could, well, it's not even that I expected these things could be taken for granted. I did, in fact, take them for granted and figured that basically the world was a good place. And um, uh, it's not that the world's not necessarily a good place. It has Now I realize it has good and bad aspects. Um, and uh, again, that came a little later in my life. So you said that the transition came... By the time you reached university, what about high school? What were your thoughts in high school? Were there any aspirations at that stage of writing? Were you philosophical in any way, or were you still insulated in that that childhood? I would say uh, in high school, I don't want to say that I was shallow. Um, I think I've always been a little bit of a thinker and maybe a little bit of a philosopher, but my priorities in high school had mostly to do with things like being popular. And uh, probably... Yeah, the biggest formative event of my childhood, I suppose, or at least obvious one. I mean, there are all sorts of things that you take for granted that were formative events and you don't really realize what those were. But among things I can point to, getting into wrestling my sophomore year in high school was huge. Up until then, I hadn't been the least bit disciplined. Um, I wouldn't say I had any particular concerns. That was the big thing uh, from which I learned a lot of things. Um, discipline. Um, a belief that if you work hard enough at something, you can become a success at it, even if you don't necessarily have a tremendous amount of native talent, which uh, for anything athletic, I wouldn't say I do. Books and authors at this stage. Okay, let's, high let, let, Well, no, let's go from, let's travel from high school into university in right. your Cornell years. Right. What were you reading at that stage? Uh, Stephen King was uh, was one of my favorites, starting in... Before college, I mean, I, I remember I picked up his book, The Shining, when he only had, I think, two books to his credit. This is very hard to imagine at this point. The Shining was his second book. Uh, if I'm No, his third book. That's when I picked it up and then immediately went back and read the, uh, Salem's Lot. 
and Carrie was crazy about him. He was the first author who I just felt like, oh my God, I love this guy's books. And then I, every time he would bring out uh, a new one, which fortunately was fairly often, uh, I would buy it, The Stand and, and Cujo, et cetera, et cetera. So I read Stephen King pretty religiously all the way through college when I was supposed to be studying. Um, Mario Puzo, The Godfather, made a big impact uh, on me also. that was I had a habit during exam week, they would give you a week off no classes and you're supposed to be studying. And there was a used bookstore in uh, Ithaca that I used to like to frequent and I would always pick up three or four books when I, so that I could just go to the library and read these books again when I was supposed to be studying. Not a coincidence that I said uh, academic would be the, the weak stepchild in, among those three that you mentioned. So Mario Puzo, definitely. I still, in fact, when I teach writing now, I cite The Godfather uh, for examples of just great storytelling craft. Stephen King, certainly. Uh, Don DeLillo um, started reading when I was in college and all these guys. Had a fact. How do you look at the way that screenplays come around how do you look at you mentioned the shining right how do you analyze whether a book has been translated well into a filmic piece ah um well the first thing you have to ask i think is does the film succeed as a film if you're translating a book from uh from its form in a novel for the screen, then there are certain challenges that are going to present themselves in terms of fidelity to the source material and that kind of thing. Certainly, commercially speaking, all that can be quite important uh, because you don't want to disappoint fans, for example. If they're, expecting, if they're expecting what they know of The Lord of the Rings from having read the books, you can't give them something totally different that even if it were to succeed as a film uh, in its own right, is so divorced from the source material that people will, yeah, uh, will yeah. not like it. Their expectations will be... Um, will be violated. So, But my first question is always, does this succeed as a film? If you try to be too faithful to the source material, you could, uh, you could wind up making something that's really recognizable uh, based on its source, but also boring as a movie. So um, it's hard to say exactly. That's where I think the art is. I mean, how faithful do you have to be to the source material? But what things do you have to change to respect the fact that you can't tell the same story in the same way on the page in the novel and on the page in a screenplay. It's just a different form of storytelling. I'm going to come back to that point, but let's just move on here. You choose law right. as your career. Uh, justice, fair representation, uh, all the other factors that come into that. Why? Why did you take that road? My view of law when I chose law uh, and my view of the law today is is quite a bit different. Uh, I really stumbled into the law. I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly when I graduated from college. Um, I'd only been waking up intellectually, I'd say, for about <clears throat> two years previous. Um, and I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, like a lot of people who I think are, are reasonably smart and test well, uh, I thought, well, I'll just go to law school. A friend of mine calls it YEP, Youth Extension Program, graduate <laughs> school. Right? So I'll extend my youth. I'll stay in school. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and that's why I went. And then one thing led to another. And I, I didn't get into law out of any kind of notions having to do with, with uh, the incredible miracle of the law in terms of, uh, of civilization and how the law needs to be applied uh, impartially and how America if it stands for anything, stands for the notion uh, of the rule of law applied impartially, as Thomas Paine once said. In America, we don't have a king, but insofar as we do have a king, the law is our king. 
And uh, I didn't know any of this stuff or think about it when I was in college or law school or even after. I mean, to me, the law was just a way to make a living. It was a thing you did, whether you were a litigator or a contracts lawyer or whatever. I thought of it more in terms of uh, private law as a way of making a living. Certainly not a dishonorable pr profession, but not one that was uh, in any way particularly honorable either. Did you look at the Founding Fathers at that stage as the premise for your beliefs? Did no. you Did you look at their republic? Uh, you know, you can look back at, at the fielding papers and see that they, they were looking at more of a republic than a democracy then, mm. and uh, law was the binding pivotal power behind the country right um and, and that m perhaps has changed now do you did you you didn't look at those principles so no. much no at the time i took all of that for granted i would say uh, in which sense i was a fairly typical uh, american college student i would say it was only later that i started to appreciate just how important the law is it was like anything else i say oxygen we take it for granted until it's not there and then you miss it very much uh, I think the law is uh, is very much that type of thing in America, and uh, it's in the last 10 years or so that I've become profoundly concerned about uh, the misapplication of and the impartial application of the law in America. How did that change at Cornell? I can remember going to university and basically throwing out most of my beliefs yeah. prior to that period. Uh, Cornell, is it a different I, I guess the question would be is why mm. Cornell in the first place and when you arrived there it sounds like you had a very blessed childhood and, and in, in many ways possibly insulated from uh, life to some extent but in Cornell how does how does that academia work how mm. did it work in your mind well when I first got there again I would say Cornell was uh, an extension of my high school priorities. I was mostly concerned about parties and girls and that sort of thing. When we all? Yeah. <laughs> I'd say it's fairly normal, fairly typical. Um, I certainly wasn't concerned about my studies. In fact, I was, I was unfocused and I really didn't know what I wanted to study. Um, I took some literature and history classes and I liked them. And uh, I wound up as a psychology major just because I didn't know what else to do and I sort of fell into it. Uh, so I, to the extent that I changed when I was an undergrad at Cornell, again, it was that the last two years I was there when I started taking a, a lot more history courses and poli-sci courses and literature courses. Uh, but even at that point, I would say what was going on was more the acquisition of knowledge than the acquisition of understanding. Uh, understanding came a fair bit later, and, and I... I don't know how much understanding you can have without knowledge, so this is maybe a normal and certainly not undesirable progression. But at the time, I was building up what I look back at as knowledge, not in so much of a focused way, but I just realized that there were a lot of things I didn't know about the world that I ought to know. Even where, where are places? I mean, what are the capitals of various countries? I remember um, I actually bought a globe, just a little inflatable <laughs> globe, and I was lying on my bed, and I would, I would quiz myself, all right, what is that? And I said, taught myself where places are because I just realized this is ridiculous you don't even know where things are um, eventually when I took the first test uh, for admission uh, as part of the recruitment process in the CIA it was a 50 question multiple choice test of geopolitics basically and most of the people who take that test are government majors or history majors or whatever uh, I didn't have any of that 
uh, formal schooling. I have some history courses, et cetera, as I mentioned. But mostly I was self-taught. And I'm still, uh, today, I'm still quite proud that I got a 50 out of 50 on that exam. And it was not an easy exam, I have to say, uh, even for someone who typically does okay on, um, on multiple choice tests. It, it's unbelievable. I can remember going into an RAF interview for yeah. an officer. Yeah. And I can remember distinctly, I was 23 years old, yeah. and they asked me about Cuba, and I didn't have a clue. Yeah. They asked me about the Bay of Pigs, and, yeah. and it, it, I was just an English lad who lived uh, and, and sure. grew up around Stonehenge for the first 20 years, <laughs> and I didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah. But that's our evolution, is it not? And you talk about when you go to university, you're learning the basics. Right. But then does it not all play together, come together using that great word wisdom in mm. later life uh, what amazes me is that i often have graduates calling me up and saying yeah. i'd like to work with you yeah. i'm a master's of business administration right. just graduated and i'm thinking to myself yeah. call yourself a master's of business administration right. 20 years from right, now. right. so uh, you know I, there, there inflation are, of this terminology right? yes. what are they going to be in 20 years the super master of uh, yeah uh, yeah but uh, what was it that you saw in your country at that stage? And I n now, look, I put in my notes some fairly provocative mm. uh, uh, positions that I have. But did you start looking at America from a more global point of view at that stage, or were you thinking in internally yeah. as to the domestic product or to the social maker? Right. Uh, and I did use this word internationalist. Uh, are right. we not as a country... Uh, whether it was 20 years ago or even now, right. internationalists. And yet, if you talk to most people in this country, they have no desire to yeah. travel abroad. Yeah, which is, uh, of course, strange to me because I love traveling so much. Uh, I would say, again, that when I was in college, I looked, I took a lot of things for granted. And if I could identify one, the most major general change in my outlook and my attitude between college and now, I would say that in college, when I, well, when I was younger, I, as most people do, reflexively looked at myself and my country as the good guys. Very strong bias. We all do. It's natural. Um, I mean, just boil it down to the individual level. In fact, there's something called uh, the fundamental misattribution error, where when we see ourselves, we see ourselves in a global perspective all our whole life, our worldview, the kind of person we are, our character. And so if we do something, it's always in the context of the overall good people that we are. So, for example, to make it to use a trivial example, if I cut someone off in traffic, I know that it was a mistake on my part. I'm a good driver and a good person. I would never do something like that deliberately. Right. But if somebody cuts me off in traffic, I don't know that person. His totality to me is that one instant in time when he did something a little bit boneheaded or um, <laughs> something. Um, and so the fundamental misattribution error is when that guy cuts me off, to me, he's now a jerk. And so maybe I'll flip him off, right? I'll say, this guy's a jerk. He deserves to be flipped off. Well, to him, who's this guy flipping me off? I mean, to him, he's a good person. He doesn't do, he doesn't do this. He certainly doesn't cut people off. Or if he does, it's for a good reason or it was an accident or whatever. And now I'm disrespecting him by, by flipping him off. And the fact that I would flip him off, that's all I represent to him now. So he's going to say, hey, you know, he's going to start yelling at me or whatever. And then we escalate. Um, it's the same thing with countries. We see everything we do 
in a much larger context of what a good nation we are. And we expect that everyone else understands our actions the same way. Again, America is hardly unique in this regard. I think it, this applies to all people and to all societies. What, what has changed most probably at a high level in my uh, view of the world is that I have become much better able to look at America dispassionately, more objectively. That is to look at America not just as an American, but also the way an outsider would look at America. And uh, this is a very important thing to be able to do because if you don't know, again, to boil it down to the individual level, if you don't understand the way other people perceive you, you'll probably not be very good at getting what you want in life. You'll need a lot of luck anyway to get what you want in life Mm. or uh, a lot of forbearance on the part of people you run into. It's the same with countries. If as a country we can't understand the way other countries perceive us, how are we going to get what we want through diplomacy? Well, there's always force. You can always use force. But um, force is not the best way of going about getting what you want. Don't you think, though, that we are still in times that are governed in social history terms by the after effects of World War II, the Anglo dominance of the world? I mean, here we are, 2010, uh, so many decades after the Second World War, and yet this country has 135 installations across the world in places like Japan and Germany. Mm. It's actually more like 800. Oh, okay. Well, I'm completely out there then. But I mean, I think I'm understanding your drift, that Mm. we should be more um, sympathetic to how other cultures, creeds, nations look at us, given that whilst we're not supposedly occupiers it certainly would come over that way to them sure although we even we define it as liberators we we can hardly be seen as that can we i'm sure there are individual instances you could find or individual people who uh, in iraq who might look at america's presence there as one of liberation but uh, overall i gotta put this again the way to understand one way of understanding how other people look at us is to imagine how we would feel in analogous circumstances. So um, it's possible that if, um, if we were invaded by, um, I don't know, name, name a country. It could be Canadians, Mexicans, if you want someone close by, or it could be uh, some consortium of countries from the Middle East to liberate us from a stalled Congress and uh, corrupt government and the, um, the uh, lock that the lobbying, particularly the banking industry, has on our government today. There may be some Americans who would look at the death and destruction that accompanied that liberation as a liberation. Probably most Americans would be outraged uh, and would fight back against what they would perceive as an invading force. So I think uh, Americans are (laughs) repeatedly being shockingly naive in thinking that we can bomb and invade a country and be welcomed as liberators. uh, It defies common sense and even the most rudimentary thought experiments. In fact, um, I'm continually surprised by the notion that we can somehow um, end terrorism by force, that we can cow our enemies with a sufficient display of force. Because 
America wasn't cowed by 9-11. I mean, what did we do when we were attacked on 9-11? We geared up and went to war, overt war, in two countries, Afghanistan and Iraq. We've got a kind of shadow predator war we're waging in Pakistan and in, in many other countries too, Yemen and Somalia. So when we were attacked, we didn't say, oh, you know, we should really just listen to what these people want and find a way to get along with them, maybe withdraw our armies from the Middle East. That seems to be what bin Laden wants. We didn't do anything of the kind. We reacted with all the force we could reasonably muster. That's what people do. We're not so special in that regard. When people are attacked, they tend to fight back. And yet we think somehow that um, other countries can be cowed, other peoples can be cowed by sufficient display of force. It just, again, it does, doesn't justify logic. It defies experience and even common sense. It's cyclical, though, is it not, in the last hundred years, that if we look at history, what we, what we don't learn about history is that we don't learn about history. I mean, mm. places like Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, uh, Churchill was there in 1924, yeah. building an Indian railway all the way down through Iraq to get to the empire, right. uh, and failed in Afghanistan just as the Russians did. So we, we don't appear to learn by those mistakes. No, that's... Uh it's an interesting failing, isn't it? And it's true for uh, stock market bubbles, too. I mean, it's, I guess you would call it the triumph of hope over experience. People always want to believe that this time is different. Yeah, sure, the, it was a graveyard. Afghanistan was the graveyard of, empire, of empires for the British and then the Russians, but this time it's different because of X. But it's not, is it? It doesn't seem to be. Same old, same old. It doesn't seem to be. You move into the CIA. Mm-hmm. Um, how long had you been thinking about that, or was that a, a last-minute decision uh, in the final months of Cornell? Well, I wouldn't call it a last-minute decision exactly. It was more, as I got increasingly interested in history, current events, geopolitics, but again, I would say I was more in the knowledge than in the understanding phase of my life. Uh, and maybe 20 years from now, I'll look back at where I am today and describe it as the knowledge phase, not the understanding phase. Uh, that interest combined with an earlier interest in what I sometimes call forbidden knowledge. When I was a kid, uh, I read a biography of Harry Houdini. And I remember distinctly uh, a cop was quoted in the book as saying, it is fortunate that Houdini didn't turn to a life of crime because if he had, he would have been difficult to catch and impossible to hold. And I was so struck by that, I thought, that is really cool. This guy, on his own, acquired knowledge that could make him dangerous, that, that few people can acquire, and that the government doesn't want people to acquire. But he acquired it, and I thought that was cool. And from that, uh, who knows, did that fee- I think there was a pre-existing interest that that uh, biography, that line tapped into. I started collecting a lot of weird books from places like Paladin Press and uh, Lumpanics Unlimited, which now, sadly, is gone. And uh, books on things like weird stuff, I mean, ranging from (laughs) the big book of secret hiding places to uh, how to build an igloo to how to start your own country to uh, 21 Techniques of Silent Killing, the Death Investigator's Handbook. So so you're looking at conspiracy theories in some way. How do you temper that if you're going into an organization like the CIA? Well, going into the CIA, I wouldn't say I really uh, was a big believer in conspiracy theories. And even now, I'm not. I... I uh, find that you can explain much more in life by the dictum, uh, never attribute to malice what can adequately be explained by stupidity. You take a step back and you, at first you think, ah, this is the, uh, the secret hand of Smirsh or Spectre or whatever. And you take a step back and you realize it's just a disparate group of venal people, more or less acting in what they perceive as their self-interest, 
doing things with terrible results, certainly, but not quite in the coordinated um, kind of conspiracies that we usually imagine. So, uh, so it wasn't really uh, a leap for me, I wouldn't say. I didn't, I didn't think so much in terms of conspiracies at the time. Three years in the CIA. So fairly short period in terms of service compared to many or is yes. that what was that about did you just have an, a need to come out into the private sector into technology as you right. did in the silicon valley was was there any particular direction there well in an ideal world i think i, I would have stayed longer uh, um, there were more experiences or more experience that i wanted to get out of it um Actually, I just found it a very frustrating place to work, with certain exceptions. Um, their, their paramilitary people are great, and that part of my training I, I really loved. Um, I once heard it described as outward bound with guns, and it was wonderful. Um, I really enjoyed it. And there are some very good people in the CIA, but the problem with a bureaucracy of that size, maybe with any bureaucracy, is that the good people the performance of the good people winds up getting dragged down to the level of the lowest common denominator. And uh, I know the CIA looks fairly sexy from the outside, but don't forget, it's a big government organization. Are you defining that then as a bureaucracy, just a lot of red tape? Of I mean, others, others may interpret like a, a, what yeah. you're saying and, and put more into that, but essentially there's not much difference between the way you're defining that and, and a large organization, sure. perhaps like the TSA or anybody else. I often describe the CIA as the post office with spies. <laughs> okay. And now you know. But people forget that, actually. It's, a, it's Again, it's funny. We were talking a moment ago about um, uh, people always think this time is different, whether it's a, a new financial what turns out to be a financial bubble or oh uh we'll do better in afghanistan than the british and the russians or in this case people think people know when they go to the dmv for example what kind of competence and service the government is capable of and yet they think that because this organization has the magic initials of cia it must somehow be an exception to the rule that governments and government organizations, government services, tend to be uh, inefficient, plodding, bureaucratic ones. Uh, the CIA is no different. You left the CIA. Uh, you worked in Silicon Valley. And you're now in the private sector, the entrepreneurial world, right. as a technology lawyer. I'm interested, and I did put this in the notes, regarding your book fault line right. is that where you started developing the that sort of story structure um i don't know if that's when i started developing this the story structure as such Sub subconsciously but, well yeah for sure um, fault line uh which was my seventh book was very was particularly satisfying for me to write because that was the first book i've written that drew in equal measure on two significant career experiences. I've had one uh, as a covert officer in the CIA and the other as a technology lawyer and then as a, an officer, as a, an executive in a technology startup in Silicon Valley. So two brothers, Ben, the older one, is a black ops guy and the younger brother, Alex, is a Silicon Valley technology lawyer. So yeah, my experiences in Silicon Valley heavily informed the writing of Faultline. You traveled between Silicon Valley and Japan. And then, then, of course, you in Japan, you were 
engaging yourself or immersing yourself in yoga. Why did you decide to do that? Uh, judo. Not judo, yoga. I'm yeah. sorry. That's okay. Um, I started getting into some Japanese martial arts when I was in college, uh, judo and karate. And uh, from there, uh, developed a more general interest in Japanese culture, history, society. So I started reading a lot about Japan, and the more I read and the more I learned, the more interested I got. And then when I was uh, at CIA, I was in a position to request a language study. And because I was so interested in Japan at that point from the martial arts and what the martial arts led to, I requested uh, Japanese as my language. And I did wind up studying Japanese full-time at the CIA for about nine months. Uh, so when I went to Japan, uh, ostensibly, the way I sold it to my wife was, uh, this will be a great experience. I was a lawyer at the time. I was now in private practice. Uh, it'll be a great opportunity for me to make a lot of international connections and develop some specific expertise having to do in Japan, really uh, be a kind of accelerant to my legal career, all of which was not untrue. But the real reason I wanted to go was to train in judo at the Kodokan, which is the birthplace of modern judo, an absolutely miraculous place to train. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who trains in judo and doesn't want to at least visit the Kodokan, if not, uh, if not to spend some time formally training have, have there. Have you written about that? Or is it um, something that you may write about? No, I did write about it in, uh, in my first book, Rainfall, which has uh, a couple of scenes at the Kodokan. I'm talking more in the perspective of a biography, a different genre of, of writing. Is that something no. that you are considering? No, um, I haven't really considered it. And uh, Although I certainly did enjoy describing what makes the, plane what makes the place special uh, through the eyes of my protagonist the assassin john rain in the first book whereabouts are you now in your career so you are a technology attorney lawyer however you term it over here right we call us a solicitor in the uk and makes people laugh like drains um but where are you with your writing because i posed this question mm. again in the notes um how are you now changing in your habits of who you read are the authors mm. changing well, yeah, one thing, and it's a kind of mixed blessing, I guess. One thing that's changed a lot in my reading habits is I, I, I've been reading a lot more nonfiction, a lot more nonfiction lately, which is great. Um, some terrific books recently. I mean, uh, Tim Weiner's Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA, um, John Perkins' uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, terrific book. Michael Lewis's The Big Short about the, uh, the, the subprime mortgage meltdown really great books. I've been reading these terrific nonfiction books, which has not left. It's a zero-sum game, and only 24 hours in a day, and I haven't been reading quite as much fiction, which makes me sad. Um, but uh, I would say that to the extent where am I as a writer, what you'll see, what I see looking back, is that over the course of the eight books that I've written, and the ninth one that I'm working on now, whatever I'm really into at the time gets reflected in the books. It's not really planned. Again, this is something I've noticed looking back. But in my first book, Rainfall, I was living in Tokyo when I started writing it. I was training at the Kodokan uh, six days a week. I was just hardcore into judo. And uh, I had left the CIA not that long before. So in that book, you'll see a lot of tradecraft, a lot of surveillance and counter-surveillance. You'll see a lot of judo, and you'll see a lot of Tokyo, and whiskey bars and jazz clubs and the kind of places I was going and just in love with at the time. Um, as I became more political, 
the plots of the book started to change. So you'll start to see more on the war on terror, for example, uh, privatization. Of, uh, hmm? And with that, is story structure changing as well? I mean, if you look at the the very basic principles of story structure, yeah. you know, going from disturbance to effort and right. resolution, are you affected by those other writers that you read from, or is it purely your imagination that brings this together? Oh, I think for any writer, it, it's probably not that easy to tease apart what is information and what's imagination because it's iterative. <clears throat> when you read something and uh, it gives you an idea and your imagination starts acting on it or your imagination is already coming up with something and then you read something that helps you refine that idea that your imagination produced. <clears throat> so, uh, so yeah, for sure, the structure of my stories and the content of my stories is changing as my imagination is fed by and influenced by uh, the people I'm reading now. On the way over here, um, in the last couple of days, I listened to Noam Chomsky, who another just terrific, amazing uh, writer and thinker. I listened to uh, some lectures that he gave on uh, on propaganda, and as I was listening, what he was talking about relates so beautifully to what I'm writing about in the new book that I started imagining a couple of my characters talking about something related to what he is talking. So I actually turned off the the CD for a minute and took out my. I love the dictaphone feature on my iPhone. <laughs> it's with me always, and uh, and immediately started down, okay, well, these guys will be talking about this. And of course, that's tied in directly in the events of the book and the plot, and we'll turn the way the, the plot uh, goes. So that's an example of, well, was it my imagination who came up or came up with that? Was it the information I got from Noam Chomsky? To me, obviously, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an iterative process. It's hard to divide them. Rainfall was converted. You, that you saw a screenplay in a film with Gary Oldman. Right. What was your involvement in that? Uh, did you... Were you invited to be involved in the film, and did you retain creative control? No, I, I retained no creative control at all. And uh, many times when I say that, uh, people, particularly fans of my books, will say, what? You know, some shock and even outrage that I didn't retain control. Um, when I optioned the rights to Rainfall, I had three books to my name, and there was no way that anyone was going to option those books um, if I if I retain control over whatever casting decisions, um, screenplay rewrites, you name it, John Grisham, as I understand it, gets all those powers in a contract. But of course, every one of John Grisham's novels has produced box office gold. He's got a relationship um, with the studios that make these movies. They know he's a reasonable guy and he's not going to abuse those powers. And it's just worthwhile for them um, to give up to cede that sort of control to a guy like Grisham because they know they're going to make money. But mm -hmm. someone unknown, it's much more difficult. So the unknown author, as I was at the time, just has to make a decision. Um, do you want to maintain, do you want to retain those rights? Or do you want to cede control, cross your fingers that they'll make a good movie, uh, for the opportunity, for the chance that a movie will even get made in the first case. And if you try to keep those rights, then you're pretty much foreclosing the possibility that a movie will get made. And a, a very short response to this, but notwithstanding all of those factors, were mm. you comfortable with the film? Uh, it, uh, it's sort of a multi-level question. Um, it's very different from my book. So I look at it as 
something that was inspired by my book, but not really, it's not really the book. Jesus Christ! The rain's just about to take it! Do it! Yes, sir! You don't want it heading for the subway station! Car. Ray, he's on the same car! He's on the same car! Take him out! There's too many people. Take and uh, that was my expectation going in. So... So there's no real disappointment there? No, I think, um... I think there were... I was reasonably well insulated from... by my attitude from uh, the possibility of disappointment because I understood right up front that it's not my movie. So I'm not, I can't take the credit for its success and I can't bear responsibility for any of its shortcomings. Inside Out, your latest book that is uh, going to be on the shelves next month, what is that not only as a story, but what is that in your evolution as a writer? Inside Out is my most political book yet. It's not overtly political. It doesn't read like a political tract. Um, it's not polemical. If anyone who's curious about that stuff, you can get it all on my blog, uh, my website, barryeisler.com. Uh, but the book is heavily informed you by... Had to, you had to get that address. <laughs> Should I not have? It's very clever. Did I mention barryisler.com? No, it was, it was very clever. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. Very clever. My daughter and I were just watching... Um, uh, Wayne's World, if you remember that movie, and there's a hilarious yes. scene where Mike Myers, the Wayne character, says, he says, hey, I'll, he tells a new studio executive, I'll never sell out, I'll never do any kind of um, uh, product placement, and then someone walks over a, a pizza from Pizza Hut, and he says, yeah, oh, this looks great, I'm so hungry, and then Garth comes over with some aspirin, and he says, oh, great, I have this splitting headache, and then he drinks <laughs> some Pepsi, or it was hilarious. Anyway, uh, that's my product placement for myself. So Inside Out is, uh, is a political book, in the sense that um, the plot takes place within a world that is informed by my view of the way things really work, a view that has in turn been shaped uh, by writers and thinkers like Noam Chomsky, for example, or by MIT professor Simon Johnson, who wrote an excellent, excellent article in The Atlantic about, this must be a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, and uh, it, I'm pretty sure the article is called The Quiet Coup. For anyone who's listening, it's pretty easy to find. Simon Johnson, The Atlantic. I heard about this. It's an amazing article. And I think yes. it's called The Quiet Coup. But if you, Simon Johnson, the word oligarchy, The Atlantic, you'll find the article. It'll be your first hit. And, uh, well, very briefly, uh, Simon Johnson analyzes what we would generally think of as the American establishment as what, if it took place, if it, if it exists in another country like, say, Russia, would be called an oligarchy. I love doing that. I love taking... Uh, I love taking uh, uh, nomenclature that we reserve for other countries and applying it to our own behavior. It's, a, it's an eye-opening thing to do. Anyway, Johnson's article certainly uh, fired my imagination uh, with his view of the way America really works. And along with other writers, Glenn Greenwald uh, of Salon.com, amazing, amazing blogger who, who writes something every day that's better than you can find in almost any uh, mainstream media outlet, newspapers, magazines. We're, we're closing down towards the end of the program, but I'm, and we could talk for hours, but I'm extremely interested in this word oligarchy because yeah. this is one of the main premises for my last Letters from America. Mm. Is there some underlying message here with this word? It, it appears to me that there's the possibility that America could be looking at that paradigm 
Um, it's more than a possibility. I mean, so, Democratic Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois said candidly that um, we can't get anything done because the banks own the place. I mean, this is a senator acknowledging that, that the banks own Congress. But when you're applying that word, are you applying it more in terms of a country being led by its industrial leaders or still by political leaders? It's really a combination. Um, I don't think there's any country, any society that functions as an oligarchy, uh, which we wouldn't recognize functions as a kind of collusive relationship between the government and various private interests. It's not as though the private interests are, are um, completely in charge. It's more, <clears throat> excuse me, a collection of interests that recognize they can get further for themselves by cooperating rather than by competing. So in America, what we would, would be talking about here are politicians, media interests, military interests, and corporate interests, particularly financial interests, but not exclusively financial interests. Um, these different players should be checking each other, particularly, obviously, the media uh, should be uh, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. But in fact, the American mainstream media is either literally corporate-owned um, or, uh, or so enslaved for various institutional reasons to the government that what the American media produces, if it were produced in another country, let's say in the Soviet Union, we would rightly recognize as propaganda, government propaganda. But we can't see it that way here because we don't use the word mm -hmm. propaganda for uh, American governmental information initiatives. The Russians have propaganda. Americans have uh, press releases. So uh, that's the way I would describe, and that's the way I'm using the term oligarchy in Inside Out. So Inside Out is more of a provocative change in direction for you at this stage in your career? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, as I've become more political, and I look back at the course of the eight books I've written, politics creeps into them more and more. Again, not in a polemical way, but just as the backstory. It's a, these are these are political situations that my characters find themselves in, but never more so than with Inside Out. I and mean, this book is really uh, about some fairly obvious topical uh, things, uh, those missing CIA interrogation videos, for example, anyone who follows that, who's been following that story. Uh, the CIA announced that they made some uh, videotapes of uh, war on terror interrogations, but then they had destroyed them. At first they said it was two tapes, and then 15 months later, in March 2009, they said, oops, actually it was 92, but don't worry, they're gone. There's an, on an ongoing investigation, which I guarantee you is going to go nowhere. Um, uh, Guantanamo, Blackwater, renditions, ghost detainees, black sites, all that stuff forms the the backbone of the plot of Inside Out. But even more so is this uh, worldview about the way America really works, about the way things really get done behind the mythology, behind the pretty veneer. The story that we like to tell ourselves is stripped away in Inside Out in favor of what I see as the reality. So your goals there are different now. You have this blog... Yeah. Uh, that talks about torture and, and Guantanamo Bay. Are you seeking a particular purpose with that? I would say so. Uh, when I first started writing novels, if you'd asked me, what is, what is your purpose, Barry, in writing these novels? I would have said entertainment. I didn't really think of them as uh, anything more. 
and uh, maybe a little bit more because I think there are some interesting ethical questions, particularly uh, having to do with when is killing justified? How do people live with killing? These are questions that have always interested me and that are reflected in all my books, for example. So hopefully the novels are more than what Graham Greene, just what Graham Greene called uh, entertainments. But with Inside Out, a little bit with Fault Line, my previous book, but particularly with Inside Out, um, this book is a reflection of a philosophy that I guess has been developing in, in myself. Philosophy is too strong a word. It's almost just the way I look at the world. Um, I've become really big on the notion that our job is to do what we can to improve things, to leave the world a little bit of a better place than we found it. Some people can do a lot. Some people can only do a little. But you have to do what you can. I think that's the main thing. Do what you can. And because I'm a novelist, hopefully I've changed a few minds or opened a few eyes through my blog. I seem to have a pretty decent number of readers at this point. But I reach a lot more people through my novels. And so if there's something I can do within the context of an entertainment, because if it's not entertaining, if it's not entertaining, it will fail as a novel. And I should have written it as a blog post. I think it was Samuel Goldman said, if you want to send a message, use general, yeah. you know, general, general, uh, general, whatever it was. Uh, I, the, know the, I know forget the Forget Yeah. Use a messenger. Um, the novel has to be entertaining. You have to be on the edge of your seat. You've got to be, you know, the, the sex has to be. Uh, steamy and the the settings have to be exotic and the action has to be gripping. It's just it's got to function that way. It's got to be thrilling because it's a thriller. But within all that, if it gets you to look at the world a little differently, if it gets you to reconsider things that you took for granted, uh, makes you a little bit more of an active citizen than you were before you read the novel, then I feel very satisfied that I've done something that is more important than just entertaining people. Not that entertainment is unimportant. We all need entertainment. Entertainment is good. But I've done something that's more significant, I hope, than just entertainment through this novel. Barry Eisler, it's been a great pleasure having you on the program today. I wish you so much luck uh, with this and future books. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me, and all the best to you, too. Thank you, and thank you to our listeners today. I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as we have. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 
tune in to Inner Speak Soul Adventures Talk Radio Show every Tuesday evening at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 Eastern, and learn how to let go of your past and create the reality you desire and deserve, allowing your inner communication to take place more easily without the interference of our noisy mind chatter or your ego. Inner Speak Soul Adventures with Gene Adrian, right here on the Seventh Wave Network. As a new era approaches December 2012, Evolution invites you to expand awareness now to become the magnificent creator you forgot you are. Explore beyond current sensory perceptions with host Doreen Agostino to align body, mind, spirit, and unleash inner wealth. Discover and apply universal success principles to consciously and deliberately create your life. To align with inner truth, shine light of new thought, and joyfully prosper. Tune in Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Grow Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. 